Welcome to episode 78 of the Page One podcast. I'm Tarek. I'm Marco and thanks for joining us at the Page One podcast where we'd like to speak to writers of all kinds about uh, their writing careers, how they got into the industry and uh, try and get as many hints and tips from them as possible. We've got a great back catalogue of authors, screenwriters, video game writers, comic writers, journalists, anything else I've missed out there? All types of writers. Yes. Yeah. Um, Ooh, we've, uh, not got, we've not got a cook on yet, chef. Yeah, maybe that's chef what we've got. Yeah. That's, that's but but there would definitely be some names that you know there and names you want to listen to. So do please check out the back catalogue. But we've got a great guest this week. We do indeed. This week we are chatting with M. J. Orledge, who has a varied career. He uh, he's a novel writer, but he didn't get into novels till he was in his forties. Actually, yeah. made his entrance to the writing world through TV, uh, EastEnders. Uh, was a big one for him storylining which is an interesting thing yeah to hear we talked to him about that yeah yeah and he's went on to do storylining and editing monarch of the glen uh mistresses for channel four um in fact mistress was a show that he created so yeah he kind of he's created his own products on tv and i think recently he had uh, innocent on itv as well that's right yeah so he's he's, he's done a lot of a lot of kind of classic tv that a lot of folk have watched he's mm-hmm. been involved in in some way and he chats to us a lot about the difference between the sort of TV world and publishing world and how starting out in the in the TV world has helped, I think, in, in publishing. We hear about, you know, how he got his agent and how he pitched his series and things like that. And that's definitely some influence that he brought from the TV world. Yeah. Um, but he talks about the, the sort of pros and cons of each each industry as well so it's a really interesting chat and really fun uh, he's a lot of fun to chat to yeah. so uh, we'll get straight into it uh, after a quick advert for our writer's notebook which as we said last week it is undergoing a second printing a new and improved version is coming out shortly but you can uh, go onto the website and put your name down so that you get a discount when that second printing is available but that's enough from us on with the podcast the blank page To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is, write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made Page One. Page One is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story, 
so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project. Whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic or any other kind of story, we truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. Did you always want to be a writer? Um, well, I didn't think I did, but it was interesting. I, I was with a friend the other day from school and and he was talking about how age, whatever he is, 46, he's still trying to find his purpose in life. And, and he uh, remembered how when I was 15, I said to him, I wanted to be a writer with utter conviction. And I have no memory of this whatsoever, but, uh, but it obviously was there somewhere. Um, but I think, I think for me, I mean, like a lot of people who want to be writers or, or, or creatives of some sort, I sort of did what most people did and just went, went to work in the arts sort of hiding behind other people who were doing the writing. So I was sort of producing or I was script mm-hmm. editing because I didn't quite have the nuts to actually do the writing myself and sort of put myself out there. So it took me a good, um, well, until I was nearly 40 to actually sort of take the plunge myself. But I think the idea of telling stories was certainly always there. Am I right in that you, you first started working on EastEnders uh, as a storyliner? Is that correct? That yeah, that was that was one of, one of the great times of my life is um, when I was 23 or two, something like that. And I'd, I was about a year out of college and I've been I kept trying to get jobs at EastEnders because basically people burnt out there so quickly that there was always vacancy. Great. So, so <laughs> was a good that, yeah. And there's someone, someone at film school gave me that tip and said, go for the soaps because people only last 18 months. So they're always looking. And, <laughs> and I tried two or three times and didn't get in because I was very young and on the third attempt, I did get an assistant storyliner job. And so it was great fun because when all my friends were doing sort of terribly tedious law conversion courses and, uh, you know, I was <laughs> I was helping in a very small way to storyline EastEnders. Um, I, th- I think I was largely responsible for the, the, the stories that involved Wellard the dog and Sonia Jackson and all, all the, the kids and stuff. But that was absolutely fine because it just... You know, when those episodes went out, and e- even if you only had one tiny little element that belonged to you, you know, back then, you know, 15, 16 million people were watching it. And that seemed rather exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And what, what does it, what, what is a storyliner exactly? What, what did that involve on a day to day basis? Well, it, it pretty much involves a, a lot of what I do now, which is basically there was a massive whiteboard, um, absolutely biggest thing I've ever seen. And essentially, you had to plot six months in advance um, for EastEnders and say exactly, you know, know what was happening. Because we always filmed, you know, months. The, the Christmas special was always filmed in August and all that sort of stuff. So, sort of, you were always filming months and months in advance. Um, and you just had to have these massive stories that could sustain three episodes a week for six months, you know. So, they were really, and, and there were sort of probably about five, six, seven big ones going. And you'd have the, you know, you'd have the sort of comic ones, but then the sort of big infidelities and bust ups and people dying and then coming back to life and all that sort of stuff. Um, and um, and that was just, I mean, in terms of an education when you were like in your early twenties of how to plot a story that yeah. can sustain six mm-hmm. months, it was was pretty amazing, really. Um, and to be honest, you know, and so that that was sort of how I started out, you know, and I was still very junior at that point. But then then I graduated to, to script editing, and a lot of those. Um, skills that I learned there in terms of interweaving five different stories, five different POVs, and then building to a sort of cliffhanger basically in sort of 29 minutes. 
in a way, that's probably still how I plot a novel now. You know, I never write in the first person. I, I, I can't do it. I find it too slow. I have to have, I have to have, yeah, say about three or no, five or six different POVs all interweaving because it generates pace and you can, mm-hmm. you, you can sort of spin off each other and then build it to a sort of climax. And so I think certainly when I wrote Eenie Meenie, I think probably I was just approaching it like an episode of EastEnders, you know, with very short chapters and lots of, and multi POVs. And, and how did you get into that role in the first place? You know, if there's, if there's folk out there listening to this, you kind of want to get into the TV world. You know, what, what, what was your path to applying for that? And has that changed? Is there any tips you would give for that now? Well, I, to be honest, it's such a long time ago, I wouldn't know how it works now, but I suspect it's the same. I mean, the BBC, so, I mean, I, I as I said, there was a guy at film school who said, look, target the soaps. And I thought, well, okay, I don't, I've never really watched Coronation Street, so I can't really talk authoritatively about that. But EastEnders, I do know, so I'll go for that one. Um, and these jobs would come up, you know, and I, I applied for one sort of through the normal channels to begin with. But then I met the exec and he said, look, I like you, but you're too young. But we sort of kept in touch. And, and when things became available, um, uh, I, I sort of went for them. And I just kept sort of um, religiously watching the show. And then ultimately, when they said, um, you know, we might there might be something in for, it, for you, I had to write sort of three potential storylines and and i found them the other day when i was clearing out the the shed which was quite entertaining and uh, um uh, and that again was a really good sort of um exercise in actually can you tell a story with the beginning and middle and end you know and, and so i did that and i think it really i think there is no advice at all i mean if you can if you have any personal in i think that's amazing if you know someone who knows someone who knows someone who works in either publishing or tv it's always best to have some familiar name who can try yeah. and sort of shepherd you in, obviously. But I think the main thing for me was just was just persistence, because in a way, if you are half decent and you are persistent, in the end, you sort of can't fail, I don't think, because you only fail really when you give up. Um, and I just I just sort of knew that that was my routine. And in the end, as I said, after sort of hammering at the door two or three times, I eventually got in. And and since the, the or pro, after EastEnders, you then I think you worked on Monica the Glen, and also then went on to create shows for the BBC as well. I mean, mm. h- how did how did that come about? You know, what does that involve exactly? Obviously, you're already known at the BBC and everything, but are you having to pitch something to a producer and stuff and see if see if it's something they want to do? Well, I think you know the, there are two ways to sort of get into that industry you can either work sort of in-house for the bbc which a lot of people do because it's quite sort of safe and solid or you can work for an independent production company you know there are lots of very famous independent production companies um like left bank who make the crown or or you know mammoth who make bodyguard and so on and i think that um a lot of the more interesting work i think is done by the independent production company so it's best to sort of work out you know it's all you're always at the end of the program it says who made it yeah. so you can you know, or, or you can look in the bfi handbook or whatever you can work out who the big ones are and just try and sort of get in just try and get a foot in the door with one of those because i think that that most of the interesting work is there i mean for my particular route i you know nothing is ever wasted in the sense that when between before i got my job at eastenders i was script reading for various companies um, including one called Across Films, um, who made Mrs. Brown back in the day and, and made Monica the Glen. Um, and they get sent so many scripts and books and all that sort of stuff that they can't be bothered to read them themselves. So they pay <laughs> sort of students and people to read them and find out if they are pieces. And I'd basically been reading for Across for quite a long time. Then I got my job at EastEnders. But I'd always, you know, I'd always stayed in touch and I sent them Christmas cards just to, you know, just, you know, which was sort of a strategic 
you know, just to try and keep my name in the frame. Mm-hmm. And it really paid off. It was really interesting because I sent him a Christmas card January, uh, well, sorry, on December, when was it, 2019. And then I was at EastEnders early, to, um, not 2019, I'm talking about um, back in the day, it was being, oh my God, it's last century. But anyway, let's, let's <laughs> gloss over that. Anyway, let's say I sent him a Christmas card as a certain year. And, um, and then I was at EastEnders and I went for a promotion. I didn't get it. And I thought it was really unfair because I thought I was good enough to do it. And, and I was really furious with them. And I went back to my office and literally an hour later, the phone rang. And it was one of the old people from ACOS. And they said, look, we've got this show called Monica Lem we're doing. We're looking for a script editor, which was what I was doing. Um, would you would you like to come and chat? So I chatted and then jumped ship immediately and went to Monarch and worked on that for two happy years. Um, and that was just a sort of simple example of how I actually just never losing touch with people being quite strategic just keeping those relationships Mm -hmm. bubbling can really pay off and it's only a you know christmas card or whatever it doesn't take much time but it's really that personal touch i think is really important i mean then so i started working for them first at monarch and then pitching new shows and really then you're just an independent producer who's trying to Mm -hmm. tap up the best writers calling in coming up with ideas yourself that's why i did a lot of i came up with an idea but i wasn't an established writer so i'd find somebody and i worked with Chris Lang, who's, who does Unforgotten for ITV, and Ed Whitmore, who's just done um, Viewpoint and Manhunt and other stuff. And you're working with some really nice crime writers. Um, and and so then it's just, you know, you you dream up these old days. And, and pre-COVID, you would then go in and meet with Polly Hill at ITV or Piers Wenger at BBC, whatever. And it's that brilliant pressure of going in and just pitching the idea, um, which I always loved. A lot of people hated it, but I... I love the pressure of that and the excitement of it. And of course, you can come out with nothing and you feel a bit of an idiot. But if there is a bit of a bite, it feels very exciting. It yeah. sort of caught their interest. And, it, and it's an exercise in how, you know, and, and, you know, it has relevance to both TV and, of course, for, for books, when actually you've got to have a log line on the front, which is one sentence, or on the back, which is two, which can hook you immediately. Mm-hmm. And I think the sort of that, that sort of brevity is the soul of wit thing really applies to pitching so that's what i did and, and that sort of uh, up until recently what, what i what i still did and, I, and for me i think the nice thing about being in the independent sector is it forces you to be quite sharp because your job is to create and produce new shows for your independent production company and if you don't have any success they'll fire you mm-hmm. you know and so it, that that sort of does sharpen the mind mm-hmm. a little bit um and i quite <laughs> enjoyed that pressure i think not everybody does but i thought Whereas the BBC, I think it's sort of sometimes a little bit more sort of staid and sedentary. And I think, you know, sometimes a little pressure is is good, I think. And you've you've written for a lot of TV shows over the years, Silent Witness, etc. A lot of, lot of big shows, a lot of varied shows. And, and I kind of wondered, how does that work? Is that something that when you get enough experience and exposure, they come to you and say, do you want to write for like, like an episode or join the writers team? Or is it a case of you pitching saying, I would like to write for the show? Well, I, very much the latter. I mean, I think the times when people come to you and offer you something is 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 only happens if you're Jed Mercurio or whoever it may be. You know, yeah. it just it just I think everything you you gain in TV and probably publishing too, you gain by basically just being really persistent and saying, "What about this? What about this?" I mean, it, obviously, in it in every area, both publishing and TV, the role of your agent's pretty crucial. You know, and I think. I was when I was a producer, I didn't need an agent. When I when I after the books had started being successful and I wanted to write full time, I got a screenwriting agent and they were very good pals with the people at Silent Witness. So so I got in there relatively quickly. And I think 
I always, when people ask me about getting novels published, I almost say it's sort of harder to get an agent than it is to get published in a way. You know, once you've got an agent, your chance of being published suddenly rises yeah. 100%, you know. But actually, without an agent, you're, it's, it's really tough. You know, obviously, there's self-publishing. and A lot of people go successfully that route now. But I think getting an agent is the key thing because it's their job to know what people are looking for. It's their job to have relationships with the best producers or the best publishers or whatever it may be. Um, but no, I mean, pretty much, you know, everything you you gain in this world, I think you gain by just pitching, 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 knocking on doors, knocking on doors. And eventually someone will give in and just get bored of you and say, oh, OK, fine, you know. And uh, But it, it, it takes, you know, I think it's really not, I mean, particularly TV, publishing is, is possibly slightly nicer. But I think TV is not an industry for the faint-hearted. Do you know what I mean? It's full of very ruthless people, Uh and lots of people want to be TV writers or, or actors or whatever. And, you know, I remember when I was producing at these places and you get these really good actors who are coming in to audition for you. And you're like a nobody, really. You're like sort of a young 20 something and David Morrissey, all these people are coming in. And still, despite their fame, they're still having to some degree, yeah. you know, do it, sing for their supper, you know. And, and you have yeah. to have really thick skin, I think, in, in, in the TV industry. But yeah, you just have to keep pushing and keep um, pitching yourself. So after after working in the TV world, what what was it that made you decide right? It's a novel that I want to write in that first instance. Well, because I think I mean, I, so I worked. I started work on EastEnders in the late nineties, and then um, throughout the noughties was working there, and then sort of um, I realised I got to a point where. I was getting really annoyed because I was coming up with ideas for TV shows and then I was having to find writers. And it was around the time when writers started creating their own production companies so they could have more control and a bigger share of the spoils. And so it became increasingly hard to get people to work for you because they wanted to do their own stuff by their own company. And so that wasn't very attractive for us. And in the end, I just I had too many ideas where I'd pitched a really good idea and then I'd waited for a writer and then they said yeah I'll do it and then six months later they say actually no, I can't do it and you wasted all that you know so I thought I've just got to write it myself um but I was very aware in tv that there are an awful lot of producers who think they're writers and then they announce the tv industry right I'm now a screenwriter and they fall flat on their ass and, and the, the public public humiliation is quite large <laughs> and I was, I was desperate to avoid that so I thought well maybe I'll write a book because if the book doesn't get published, nobody will know. And I won't have humiliated <laughs> myself. Um, and, you know, and so then I came up with a plan because there, there was this idea which became any meaning, which I always thought was a, a really nice, uh, a pleasingly unpleasant idea. And I thought, well, how do I how do I prosecute this? Um, and so I, I, I wrote the book and I had a vision of how things might pan out in terms of it getting picked up. And, published. and it's the only the only time in my entire life that the plan has gone completely right. Do you know what I mean? And normally you have a vision of where, of where your life's going to be and it sort of goes slightly sideways. Yeah. You're always 50% successful. This one worked completely and it was, was very rare and, uh, and gratifying. Um, but then, and then it was nice. And for me now it's good because I can work in two industries. So that's a little more job security, I suppose. Um, and it's also different. I mean, the, the, the publishing world is generally full of nice people. The TV world generally isn't. And uh, <laughs> it, 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 it's nice to be able to sort of flip between the two. And did you go about the book, the kind of the traditional way that, you know, a lot of folk do in terms of finding an agent first to pitch the book and then get the book read and then pitch it to the publishers? Or or did you kind of have a foot in the door through the TV work? No, no, I wrote the whole book first. So I sort of planned it and then I wrote it. Um, and then again, I was slightly sneaky in the sense that um, 
there were a couple of people in, who worked in publishing who I knew um, who worked for um, Headline and various other publishers. And I just said to them, I said, and they didn't work in crime, but I said, um, can you just ask your crime editor who are the best agents to represent crime? So, so, this, so they went away and they came back and said, our crime editor said X, Y, and Z. So I wrote to all those people and I used the crime editor. I put the crime editor's um, name in the um, subject heading. So, so at least yeah. they would recognize the name and they'd open it. And I'd said, I said, oh, dear so-and-so, um, X, Y, and Z told me, you know, suggested I write to you. And of course, that was that was half true because I'd never actually had a conversation with that woman. It was just sort of relayed. And it wasn't, but it wasn't completely untrue either because yeah. that's what she had recommended. So I just made it sound possibly as if I knew her um, and, she, <laughs> and, 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 she'd, and she'd recommended I write it. So I thought, well, at least they might read the first page of the book because she's not a schmuck and they, they like mm-hmm. what she has to say. Um, and, um, you know, it was interesting. And I, Ian Rankin's agent came back immediately and said, uh, I'd like to meet. So I met him and we had a nice chat. He wanted to take the book in a way that I wasn't entirely thought was, was right. And so I met a few other people. Um, and, and then in the end, I went with the only one who took me out to lunch, but that wasn't the reason. Was, uh, <laughs> the, the, the reason was, is that she was very, uh, she was only 25. But she was very hungry and, and she had great notes. Um, and I'd originally sent it to her boss, but he had too many people on, um, uh, on his book so she took me on instead and you know again it's it proved very I mean that Eeny Meeny was the best-selling crime debut that year so it worked out obviously very well for me but but good for her as well and was, was was a nice launch pad um but yeah so again I mean I just I think you have to be slightly cute in the way that you just try and get people to read the first page because obviously you know especially now you're hearing the agent's you know, a lot of people wrote their novel in lockdown, yeah. you know, when they, when they had nothing else to do. I think there are an awful lot of novels swimming around now. Yeah, and I, think I think it's any, any, and I always remember that, you know, I remember having a chat with, with, with um, one of the, the top guys, uh, Penguin, the top crime guys. And he said, even if you get a solicited script, i.e. something that an agent has spoken to you about and you ask for it, you often have to read it at the weekends, like on a Saturday. And part of you is praying it's shit. <laughs> so that you can, so in a way, so you can put it down and, and get on with your life, you know. Um, if it's good, that causes a problem because then you think, ah, oh, do I, I want to bid for it? And, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I always remember that and sort of thinking, okay, so even for the ones that they actually want to read, still part of them doesn't want to read it. Yeah. So, so if it's completely unsolicited, how much are they going to want to read it? You know, so, so it's, it's just about doing anything you can to suggest that it might be worth five minutes of their time, I think. And then, then if you've got, you know, a, a good first chapter, maybe, maybe you can get further down the line. Do you, do you think your? It, it sounds to me like your experience in those pitch meetings for TV and stuff helped you in your approach as well to the agents and and getting getting your foot in the door there. Even even though you didn't have experience in that industry as such, but you were able to use those skills in pick in finding your agent in the end. Oh, definitely, definitely. And I think it's sort of, you know, TV people are quite pushy, you know, because mm-hmm. you, you really have to be, you know, everyone's sort of got their elbows out. And I think, you know, a lot of a lot of novelists are great at pitching themselves, but a lot of novelists are actually people who like to spend a lot of time by themselves in a room, yeah. you know, and actually don't really like other people and are not brilliant at self-promotion. And I think, and also not brilliant at, at thinking sort of possibly further down the line so when i when when i went into 
talk to Penguin about Eeny Meeny, I pitched them the first seven novels in the series, which obviously was, oh, was wow. complete, completely over the top and a ridiculous show of hubris. But <laughs> I knew, but I knew that you know, in TV, you think in big numbers. You yeah, know, yeah. nobody wants a single yeah. single film issue piece. You know, everyone wants the next CSI. You know, they want things to come run and run and run. And so, and I always remember I used the F word franchise which they which they they love they thought that was marvelous you know this is sort of they, most authors don't use that word because it sounds terribly tawdry and commercial you know and actually but but for them if you're if you're writing commercial crime which i am you know i'm not, not trying to win the book of life yeah. i'm trying to create really page-turning thrillers in a way that's what they want and they want to, to know that once you've done one you might be able to do another and then another because you know it is those the Chris Carters and the Robert Brindises and those people who do it regularly, that actually is the bread and butter, you know, because, you know, people like Rankin, they're, they're massive, obviously, but they're, you know, I don't know how, how often Ian writes a book now, but it's probably one every, every sort of two or three years. Yeah. Uh-huh. And that's great. But actually, if you can do it year on year and then slowly build that, that readership, that's what they're looking for. And I guess that's, that's sort of what the way I went about it. And I think, I think a lot of people, a lot of novelists sort of collapse exhausted over the line with their first novel and, and don't necessarily have an idea of, of what to do next because that's the one they've always wanted to write, you know, or whatever it may be. But I, I was sort of quite clear that I felt that, you know, it, it had um, legs. And and even now people say, well, how many Helen Grace do you want to do? And I, I can't remember. I think I've written 10 now. And I think I'm just writing the 11th now. And you sort of think, well, why not do 20? You know, why, why not sort of be bold as long as you're still here and people are still interested in her, then go for it because there seems to be an insatiable appetite for crime so one might as well yeah. sort of uh, feed it <laughs> <laughs> well well the latest one is truth or dare and that is number 10 um i think as well and, and, and that's out on june 24th and um so why don't you tell us a little bit about the book and then we'll and then we'll chat about the series as well um so truth or dare is, is possibly the most complicated one i've ever written it's the only one i've ever had to write a massive diagram a bit like being back at eastenders where okay so he okay to just try and keep my con- the connections in my head because it is very byzantine but it, i i think it's probably the best one i've written so far and it's basically it's about a crime wave that suddenly grips southampton a series of sort of brutal murders for which there seem to be no suspects or indeed any clues um, and helen and charlie and the team investigate and even when they do start to make progress things scarcely become any clearer because the um, perpetrators seem to have no connection with their victims or indeed any motive for killing them. Um, so it seems as if the city's basically sort of descended into this madness, this sort of chaos of, of murder and brutality. And then slowly, as Helen starts to sort of piece together the connections, she realises that perhaps there is a rhyme or reason to this sudden crime spree. Uh, and of course, it, it falls to her to, to, to work it out and 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 uh, divine the shadowy puppet master behind it all. Um, so that's it, basically. It's sort of set in a, in a hot, uh, steamy uh, summer in Southampton where everyone seems to be going mad. Um, and it's different from the normal ones. Quite often there is one serial killer perpetrating multiple murders and you're trying to just work out who they are. This one, as I say, it's multiple perpetrators, multiple victims, all sorts of craziness. And Helen very much at the heart of it all. Excellent. And yes. w- when you're writing a series of books like that, um, I mean, you've sort of alluded to already that you're sort of thinking ahead but each book is obviously its own thing, but you've got the the characters, especially Helen, going through them all. Do you have in your head even a long-term plan for where you want Helen to go, or do you, do you just sort of deal with that when you start your new book and say, right, where is she now? Well, I think it depends. I mean, 
there are two sort of conflicting imperatives, really. One is to try and make each book feel demonstrably different to the one before. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the, the Doll's House, which is the third one, was incredibly claustrophobic and interior and about a girl trapped in a house and trying to escape. And, you know, it was very claustrophobic. So I knew that the next one, Liar Liar, really wants to be epic. So it was about arson, multiple fires everywhere. You know, it was sort of, it was on a much bigger scale. And and then the fifth one was very much about Helen's personal life. So I changed it up again. So I'm always trying to sort of um, just keep changing it. But obviously Helen is a through line. And I mean, the way it works is because it's impossible really to have a through line at last 20 novels. You would have to be pretty prescient and... Um, brilliantly thought through to do that and I so I think what I tend to do is I tell sort of mini arcs for Helen so there'll be a story for her that runs over two books or in this case three books um, and then we'll reset and start again and it's all in the interest really of keeping pushing Helen Helen really and so because oftentimes she doesn't have a relationship in recent books she has now that's turned a bit bit sour um, so yeah so sometimes I try these mini, these, these sort of mini uh, arcs over two or, or, or three stories. Um, I think really just because then you can tell an interesting beginning, middle and end for Helen um, and then something will change um, and, and we'll go again. And I think that's the sort of way I do it. I think any further ahead is sort of a bit crazy, especially if you're only doing one book a year, which I'm doing, because otherwise you'll be sort of planning four years ahead. And, yeah. and I'm sure that sort of, you know, it's like JK Rowling. I'm sure she had a sort of idea of where she was going, but I think a lot of it, developed uh, as she went along you know and uh, so it's, it's a little bit like that um but I think you know the main thing for me is is you know you have to feed the character you know that people like Helen and Charlie and they want to be well but it's also for me making sure that each book has an interesting antagonist somebody that you're genuinely interested in who is genuinely criminally insane in an interesting way um and and it, that each one is a really enjoyable standalone thriller you know so because I think when I was a development producer for TV and I was reading all these books, a lot of them you could tell hadn't really worked out the ending when they started. And so you get to it. And I think there's nothing worse than a shit ending. You know, when you, when you've sort of read through 450 pages and you think, Oh, okay. <laughs> that's a bit annoying now, you know? And, and so for me, I mean, I, in terms of process, I pretty much always start at the end and work backwards just because I think for me that the climax of the book is the whole point. And if you don't, you know, it's the meaning of the book as well. And if you don't have a proper ending, then you don't actually have a story. You might have a, an interesting beginning or a, a nice idea or whatever. But actually, for me, the, the payoff is is the whole point, really. So, yeah. so you have to make sure that's rock solid. And I think I read in an interview you gave that you're a pretty meticulous planner, that, you know, you do two to three months planning and then two to three months writing of the book. And, and you have to kind of know what's going to happen in a chapter before you even start to write it. And, and um and and I mean I mean I suppose first of all is that is that right and and second how do you combat the the fear of I'm just going through the motions I've I've taken the kind of fun of the writing out of it by planning too much is that something you ever kind of worried about uh, a little bit but I mean I think it's quite funny because it that literally goes back to EastEnders when you know occasionally a writer would be terrible or they would pull out for well and suddenly the script editor was left basically writing the episode and they were filming it next week and it was just <laughs> you know you and and you had the first ad in the corridor going what's that effing script you know you know going yeah. nuts the whole, and and you just had to just do it and and the way i always did it is i knew that there were roughly 20 to 25 scenes in, a, in an episode or maybe a bit more and so i would just literally write bullet points you know scene one this happens scene two this happens you know and then i would look at the structure and okay actually that's a bit repetitive scratch that and that's pretty much exactly what I do now, except that it's over 140 chapters. And I know that 
in the first episode this happens then we'll pick up helen in the second one you know and so i i so i absolutely know exactly what happens in each chapter before i start and then as you're writing you realize that actually maybe you don't need that chapter because you've covered it there and you you pull bits out and you change it around and i think there is a danger always you, you, if you know exactly what's happened it's not gonna be that fun to write but i think the difference is i suppose for me is that if i do that i know i can write five chapters a day basically yeah. and i go at it quite hard and fast which i find quite exciting and i sort of basically got an hour or two to write each chapter and i've got, I've got to nail it and just get it down there um and i find that quite exciting but also you know even as you're writing it things happen and people say things that you you know it's a bit of a cliche but they do say things you weren't expecting them yeah. to say mm-hmm. you think, oh shit that hadn't really occurred to me but now of course you do that in that situation so it does morph as it goes along but i think you know for me that planning is is it, i enjoy it and, and it's also just one of those things is that if you have a target it's 140 chapters you've got to do five a day that's going to take you however long what that does is it means you actually get a first draft down you know, and in a way, that's whether you're, you know, Val McDermott or 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 a first time writer, actually just getting the first draft is is the thing. Is you, you know, you've written one, you, you know what it's like. It's just until you've got that, you've got nothing. Yeah. You know, and I and I think that's the thing is just to get a first draft. That's obviously never going to be published. You're going to make it better, and an editor will make it better. Or but until you've got that, and then you can step away and look at it and read it all, and think, oh, okay, it's a bit baggy there, and that doesn't make sense. You know. And so I think for me, that just guarantees me, okay, I will actually get that first draft done. And then, then the proper work can start, you know, once you've actually just sort of laid down a, a sort of base, the foundations, then then you can start having a bit of fun, but, but it is, and it is a bit of a slog, you know, it is writing a novel is not an easy thing. Um, but once you've got that, then you can start to make it better. Um, so yeah, very meticulous. I don't find it boring. I find it quite exciting. Um, and it just does mean I get it down, which is the main thing. And does that process lead to, uh, I mean, obviously you've just said that there is still work to do, obviously, after that first draft. Mm-hmm. But I mean, is it is it quite a clean first draft? Do you push through that first draft and say, right, I've done those five chapters on to the next one? Or do you ever sort of revise what you're doing as you're writing it? Or do you wait until the first yeah, draft is no, entirely I complete? I mean, I think, you know, I don't know what everyone else is like, but I think writing a novel is a bit like sort of having a mistress. Is it, is it sort of, you know, when the family are otherwise engaged, you sneak back up to your study and lock <laughs> yourself away and you just, you can't quite leave it alone, I think, when, you, when you're writing it. I think you sort of, but I'm quite disciplined in the sense that I write sort of during the day and then, you know, if, if the kids are doing something in the evening or I've got a spare moment, I'll creep back up and I'll just reread it and edit it myself, sort of a couple of chapters that I've done or whatever. So, so I think you are editing it and making it better as you go along. And of course that helps remind you also what you've written before because it again writing a novel is quite a long thing and you can sort of forget what you wrote in chapter three so it's quite useful and i think it's also reassuring is you start to think okay that's starting to feel quite tight that opening now that's that's quite good so no i i write during the day and then i sort of stroke it and tinker with it in the evening you know when when i can and with your um sorry i was just going to ask obviously you'll get your your notes from your editor as well i mean how does that compare with the screenwriting world because when we've spoken to people that have worked in that in that world it seems to me that you can get notes from 30 different people almost in that world yeah. because there's yeah. so many people involved whereas with an editor it's a much closer process i think yeah i think it's basically much better in publishing in the se- in that sense and i think the thing about publishing if you've got a good editor then they'll give you their notes and not generally you're sort of furious for a week that that's what i think is you know, <laughs> yeah. they, 
they should have the temerity to question this. To, yeah. uh, and then you realise that actually all their notes are right. And that's quite annoying too. And then you, and then you think, ah, oh, I've actually got to do this stuff now. And, and I hate second drafts. They're the worst. I, third, first drafts I like, third drafts I like, fourth drafts I like. The second draft is, is awful. It's just sort of you're fixing all the stuff that you should have fixed before. Yeah. And, and you're rearranging bits. And it just feels awkward and clumsy. And then eventually you get it and then it feels better. But, but at least it's quite clean. And if you have a good personal relationship with the editor, then you can have a bit of to and fro and a bit of explanation and you can work things around. I think the thing with with TV is it's just too many people in the room always. Yeah. So, some of them even unseen, you know, just, oh, I've spoken to my boss and she thinks this or... Uh, my boss's wife thought the first act was a bit boring, you know, or, or whatever it may be. And you, you do get a lot of that. And that's what's sort of ultimately slightly sort of debilitating because um, you it just you don't need that many people. You know, if you've got a good producer and a good script editor, that's plenty. You know, I mean, mm. the silent witness experience for me, I enjoyed the first one. The second one was pretty bad. There was terrible. And it sort of it got progressively worse simply because there were more and more people in the room. And I remember having one script script meeting when there was three script editors in the room and it literally was how many script editors it takes to change the light <laughs> like, because what happens when they start disagreeing yeah. you know and you yeah. sort of think well and I, I literally couldn't believe it and I, I, I sort of you know uh, maybe the script did lead a lot of work but you just on any level that's absurd you know and actually and they're probably trying to justify themselves as well for being there yeah of course, you know, they're getting paid whatever they're being paid by the BBC, so they have to say something, mm -hmm. which is just the worst possible motive. And some yeah. of the best commissioners, I always thought, were the ones who said very little or just said, look, I do like it, but it just needs to be more edgy or it needs to be whatever, or just something that was just very simple. And you said, OK, I get, get where you're coming from. And, and again, it's that tendency to sort of micromanage, which you don't really get in, in editing in, in quite the same way. I mean, yes, I'll do line by line stuff and all the rest of it, but it's just, it generally tends to be more sympathetic than, than this desire to sort of um, correct your stage directions or something really sort of simple and banal. And you think, mm, not sure that's really relevant. And I think that that's the trickiest thing is just charting your course. And ultimately you have much less power because the power lies with the execs and with the mm -hmm. actors and to some extent the directors, but, but not even them really. And, and so I think you're very expendable as a screenwriter, whereas as a novelist, you're not. You know, you're, you're, you're all they've got for that particular series. So you're quite unexpendable, you know, and uh, and that's nice. You know, it does give you a feeling of confidence. Um, and so I do. I'm, I prefer writing for writing books. But, you know, I had a show called Innocent that was on ITV uh, uh, very recently, last month, in fact. And um, by the same token, you can't deny that there is a thrill to seeing your name on the screen. You know, and that is yeah. that is TV is a sort of more exciting world, you know, but I think in terms of creativity, publishing sort of wins hands down, really. And is is what you've learned from being a script editor and stuff? I mean, I think you've already alluded to this as well, but, you know, you, you brought some of that structure and pacing into your novels to make them page turners, I suppose. Has that helped you in, in taking forward your novel writing? Yeah, definitely. And I think it's partly structural is that, you know, when I was working as a script editor or producer in TV, there was an amazing amount of writers who were, who were absolutely brilliant on atmosphere and dialogue, but absolutely couldn't structure a story to tell their life. They didn't understand really a beginning, middle and end. It just, it just didn't come naturally to them. Um, I think if you're a crime writer or a comedy writer, both of which build and build to this huge either comic yeah. or, or thrilling payoff, structure is so important, I think, you know, um, because everything has to be note perfect really and in the right place um uh 
so so that was very important also just the fact that i think i i'm used to editing so i basically edit myself um yeah. and so i think the difference is is that i think what's useful for my editors and i guess my team is that when i deliver a first draft there'll be work to do but it won't be baggy or unfocused or all over the shop it will be it'll be a very succinct presentation of the best i can do so far mm-hmm. and then they and then they will make it better and enrich it and you say ah, okay yeah that's obvious we should have done that you know um but i i think that makes a big difference because i think you know i'm sure i've, I've never been a publishing editor but i imagine sometimes you get this 700 page yeah. magnus our person you say oh my god <laughs> where do we there's a great novel in there somewhere but where do we start you yeah know? and i'm sure it becomes quite a quite a sort of exercise in in, in corralling it so i try and keep things Type. But then, I mean, again, that's that's. Um, I remember when I when I wrote Unimini, I presented it proudly to the agents, and it was fifty thousand words, which I thought was pretty long. And they said, "No, it's twenty five thousand words too short." Um, and and I, which was a bit of a blow. But and I realised <laughs> that 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 what I've done is I I was so scared of boring people that the chapters were like a page long or two pages long. They were so short, and there was no dialogue. It was just all action, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and they said to me, "Look." You need a bit of dialogue so people can, you know, they can't see the characters, they have to imagine them. So let, let's hear them speak so people can start to sort of visualise them. And they also said, which I think was really interesting, because Eeny Meeny was all about people being locked in a room together and having to decide which one lived and which one died. Um, all the agents, 90% of whom were female, said, oh, no, we need to spend much more time with the people in the box. We need much more emotional cruelty in this in this, uh, in this this story. And I thought, oh, that sounds fun. That sounds jolly. So, so suddenly these brief vignettes that I'd had of people, they expanded into two, three chapters of people really sort of being tortured. And it was great fun, actually. <laughs> it's funny, you, you know, you were saying there that your first, after Vini Mini, your first book didn't have very, very much dialogue. And, and, mm. and, and I've find that surprising because I would have thought coming from a script side of things, moving to novels, I kind of wondered, you know, would you, would you keep that mentality into the book and have a lot of dialogue and have a lot of showing, not telling, or, or did you lean the other way and did you lean more into the, into the kind of, this is just you in the book and you can tell the reader anything. It doesn't have to be in dialogue. It doesn't have to be open. It can just be, you just tell the reader something. Yeah. Well, I think sort of, you know, TV is basically based around dialogue because you generally don't have the amazing set pieces or the or the production values of film. Um, I, I think I was trying to write a film in the sense that you know a lot of the best films do tell their stories through pictures rather than dialogue, basically mm-hmm. because they can. And I think that's what I was trying to do. I sort of thought, wouldn't it be great if you know you've got a blank canvas really as a book, so there's no worries about production values. You can do whatever you like, which is one of the great joys of it. Um, and so I thought I'd just go for that. And then I just realised that actually, you know, what a character just going from A to B to C to D without actually speaking and telling you something about themselves and how they enjoy <laughs> doesn't actually tell you very much. They, they're just a, they're just character A doing something. And that was it, you know, I mean, and the funny thing is, is how many novels you write or how many screenplays you write, you're still liable to make basic mistakes where you just think, oh, actually, come on, that's obvious. I, you know, that's massively expository or, or or my god you know that character says nothing throughout the entire but you know and you just make these mistakes time and again and each time you do it you sort of learn and and hopefully as you go along you get a bit better but it's it's um it was just a mistake and it was pure it was pure fear for me i think in the end of just trying to keep it as short as possible so people didn't turn off you know but it was <laughs> in the end in the end i'd edited it too tight and it needed a little room to, to sort of breathe. And uh, um, and it's really interesting. I mean, the ending of, of, of Eeny Meeny is quite brutal. Is you get to the end 
there's a terrible payoff and then it ends. And I remember quite a few people, both within the publishing house, but also readers just saying that that was, they felt they needed a bit of an epilogue or, or some time to calm afterwards. And pretty much ever since then in books, I've just sort of tried not to punch the reader in the face and then say the end, you know, I've tried to sort <laughs> of just, just let it just smooth and just have, okay, the dust will settle now. This terrible things happen, but perhaps all will be well, you know, and just, and so you learn those little things as you go along. Um, but that's just, you know, that's just experience, I guess. And you've also done some work uh, for Audible as well, I think, Six Degrees of Assassination. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, what was it like? I suppose that's almost like another field that you work in the world of audio only, sort of radio play type stuff. Is that another, you know, was that fun playing in that sandbox as well? Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, it's it's very odd, sort of, because you're having to rely obviously completely on sound. And mm-hmm. actually, once you start to realise that and you, and you play to your advantage, is that silence is kind of incredibly powerful on in, in audio. Like when someone's creeping through a house or treading on broken glass, you can actually have some really good fun if people can't see. And they're like, what's going on? What's going on? You know, and you can really you can really start to play with that. But it is quite hard because you've got the production, you know, you've got these amazing production values because you can pretty much do whatever you want. Yes. Um, but I'd never written audio drama before. And generally I'm not, I haven't been a massive fan because it tends to be, you, know, you, you turn on Radio 4 at the wrong time and you get some sort of awfully <laughs> earnest sort of, and it's just, oh my God, people actually commission this stuff. It's so boring and so old fashioned. And so I was trying to write a, an audio thriller and they were very keen audible to be the sort of netflix of audio creating lots of original content you know and i think i'd always had this idea six degrees of assassination which i thought was quite a funky idea and when somebody offers you an outlet whether it's audio publishing tv then you sort of take it because it's fun um uh, the money's terrible so you have to get your head around that and uh, and sort of work out whether that's worth your while doing it um but I was interested in trying a new medium and Audible are obviously a great company and they were really pushing it hard. Um, and of course, you've got a cast, you know, had Andrew Scott and the sexy priest from Fleabag and, uh, <laughs> and from Spectre, you know, and Hermione Norris and lots of other amazing people in it. And, you know, um, uh, and that was just amazing to go down to the recording studios and, and, and meet those guys and chat to them. So, of course, because it's only two days work for them, like an 11 part series or whatever. So that was lovely. And I always remember my my agent, Heli, turning up and um, Andrew Scott is gay, which is no secret and uh, very gay. And he's out there. And uh, But still, he's so sexy that uh, I remember my uh, agent hiding her engagement ring, sort of <laughs> behind her back, even though she knew that this, that this was not an option and there was no chance. You know, she, she was still so dazzled by him that she kept her engagement ring hidden. But uh, so, yeah. But, um, but that was fun. And uh, yeah, and I just think, I guess the freedom of either writing books or audio where you just don't have those production or those budget, budgetary constraints is, is very exciting. And, and to write a thriller, like a sort of breathless, hooky thriller like that was really good fun. It, it's it, like I've listened to a few now because Audible have, have so many of them now. But And obviously they vary massively in quality. But sometimes it is, as a writer, it must be difficult to, portray things in a scene when it is only audio you get you know the worst examples are you get the 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 person saying oh no don't do this to me with that <laughs> massive knife that you're suddenly holding <laughs> and all the you know it, it, is it, is there a skill in in making it seem real but also conveying enough information i suppose 
Yeah, no, I mean, the, the exposition is hard. <laughs> it's really yeah. hard. Um, and you have to be quite canny. I mean, I think the thing about doing a thriller is quite nice because anything that involves a lot of interrogation is easy. Do you know what I mean? You, it's very easy to work out who's in the room um, and what's happening and, and you can get the conflict, the to and fro. So there was quite a lot of that, which is good. But also you can do quite a lot with um, surprises. So again, I mean, it starts with an assassination. And, you know, so you've got somebody, you know, security officers talking to each other and suddenly a shot rings out and suddenly there's chaos. And that's quite easy to do. And again, that doesn't need much explanation. You get that. And so you can play some nice surprises with um, with sound that you can't do elsewhere. But, it, you know, exposition is the devil of, of every sort of genre, of every type of writing, isn't it? But it's particularly hard uh, with audio, isn't it? Because you just you have to explain certain things. And it's sometimes you can hear the, the creaking exposition uh, as you go along. But sometimes <laughs> you have to live with it. And I suppose sound effects can be massively helpful, obviously. And it's not just the dialogue, it's the sound. And there's a, a good alien one I listened to the other week there. And, and it was helped massively by the fact you had the sound of doors opening up and closing and computer voice saying stuff and footsteps and alien, you know, and, 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 and that must be knowing when to lean into the, when to let the sound effects do the heavy lifting and when to let the, let the speech do the heavy lifting. That must be quite an art to work out the yeah. best way forward. No, and I think it's again, especially in, in a thriller, there's there's so much you can do. I mean, even just sirens sort of slowly getting louder, you understand exactly the police, the police are coming. And you know, it's just little things like that, or the classic one when you when you're in a um, you know, intensive care and you've got the beep beep of the thing and then the, the flat line, and you know, again, you yeah. know exactly what's happening there without because that's that's such a sort of part of grammar now that people understand, okay, someone's having a cardiac arrest or whatever it may be. So, you know, absolutely. But again, I think in the end. It is something which dialogue, really good dialogue, works works well because you can have a very, a really good tense, sharp exchange between two characters on on audio is just as good as on TV. You know, it's just in some ways better because you can sort of imagine it in your head. And I think again, we had really good actors, which was great. So you could really sort of give them some some good lines. Um, but yeah, no, absolutely. But I mean, that was I think the biggest learning curve I've had writing that because I just wanted to write in pictures. You know, I was so used to writing in pictures. Yeah. I shit, I can't do that. All right. How, how do I get this character to say that in a in a subtle way? You know. <laughs> um, so so what's next? Obviously, Truth or Dare is coming out, and I think you said you've just finished the or finished the draft of the eleventh book um, in the Helen Grace series. Have you got anything planned beyond that? Yeah. So I'm um, I'm. So yeah, Helen Grace I'm doing now. I'm then going to do a standalone, um, which will be exciting. So that'll be something completely non-Helen Grace. I can't tell you what it's about yet um, because that we haven't decided. Um, <laughs> but there's a kind of two or three options that we're just noodling around, which will be quite fun because, again, I think, you know, chasing serial killers around Southampton is, is enormous fun. Occasionally, so the other standalone I wrote, A Gift for Dying, was set in Chicago. And that was amazing fun because... You know, America is so balmy and so much more dangerous than this country that you can have uh, have enormous fun when everyone has guns and uh, yeah. <laughs> you know it's sort of uh, it's easy to disappear and all that sort of stuff. So it's it's quite likely to be US set because I I really enjoyed the scale of that and just writing in the city of skyscrapers and all that sort of stuff was enormous enormous fun. Um, so I'm going to do that and then I'm trying to do sort of starting to do more original thing for tv i've done innocent but that was co-written with with chris lang who writes on forgotten as well and um so i'm developing a pilot for the bbc and then a pilot for alibi which is a 
a crime only um, cable channel. And um, they're original, very different pieces. One is um, a sort of uh, Big Little Lies, The Undoing, that sort of... Um, there, there seems to be a real fashion, and I love them for the, the sort of quite high-concept crime melodrama. Yeah. You know, some of it's unashamedly big and bold melodrama, but it's absolutely not procedural, just it's about people, like people's lives falling apart. Yeah. Hugh Grant, is, is he a cad or is he not a cad? All that sort of stuff, which is lovely. So I'm doing one of those. And then the... Um, the uh, BBC one is is much more sort of broad church, but with a very, very big twist, which I'm very excited about as well. But that those both early stages, I've sort of done the pilot scripts, so we'll wait and see what everyone thinks about them. Um, but, you know, there are lots of opportunities opening up in TV and elsewhere for, for crime writers. Um, and I would love to try, if, if both industries will have me, to keep writing for both of them, because it is... You know, after six months of solitary confinement in the publishing world, <laughs> it's it's quite nice to go and, uh, you know, go and work in TV for a bit. And, you know, t- publishing used to be obviously quite sociable, well, to a degree, in terms of all the events and the festivals and yeah. stuff. But but now, particularly, yeah. it's a very solitary profession. And so it is quite nice. Sometimes it's quite nice to have three script editors in the room, if only for the job. <laughs> but, uh, would, you, uh, would you want to write a movie ever? Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think in a way it would be lovely to write um, uh, for all mediums, you mm-hmm. know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've got loads of movie ideas. It's partly about having the time. And also in this industry, I mean, the TV industry here is is, is thriving, but small compared to America. The film industry here is sort of a cottage industry compared mm-hmm. to America, you know. And I think I think it would be very hard. And, and I'm not sure how many screenwriters, films could actually enjoy the process for film. I think it is... You get so far, then you get fired, and then someone totally rewrites yeah. it. And, but I think I, I'd love to do a play as well. I mean, um, John Fold's book, the um, uh, the collector, is something I've always. Uh, I don't know if you've read it. The, the idea of a guy who basically he, he's um, he's autistic, and he basically covets this this girl, an art student who he's absolutely in love with, and so one day he basically just sort of takes her. And he sort of keeps her in, in his cellar and she obviously is trying to escape her. And then she gets unwell and he's sort of trying to work out, should he try and go to the doctor? But obviously that would, you know, and it's a sort of very tense two-hander that I've always thought would work amazingly well as a sort mm. of stage player. If you imagine she's you're in the basement with them, basically, you know, and that's your, you know. So I'd love to do something like that, which is just really um, tense and unforgiving. And, uh, but, but, you know, ultimately... Uh, you know, just a great piece of writing. So, I, you know, I, I'd love to do that. It's just, it's just finding the time. <laughs> but yeah, why not? Let's do, let's do them all. What was the last book that you read? Um, what was the last book that I read? What am I reading at the moment? Um, I think. The last one I read was, oh, it'll be um, a Patricia Highsmith one. I constantly sort of go back to her. Um, and I've just reread The Cry of the Owl, which is my favourite, which is about a um, woman who falls in love with her own stalker, which is quite a strange idea, mm-hmm. but uh, but very interesting. So, so yeah, she, she, I sort of always sort of go back to her um, every now and again because uh, I just think she's, she's my favourite. I've not read it in first time. I've got Talented Miss Ripley on my shelf, but I've never, I've never yeah, read it. Yeah, well, that's, that's great. Um, Strange on a Train, classic, of course, as well. So can't beat her. She's just so, 
There are like no nice characters in her books at all. Everyone, everyone is is a sinner in this sort of terrible fallen world, which I just it's so noir. I I love it. I love nice. it. Um, and what about the last film that you watched? Um, the last film that I watched, what was that? Um, it was oh, um, it was the Sound of Metal, the one that's just oh, yeah. um, recently the Oscars with yeah. there, yeah. which again I thought was was astonishing. You know, just brilliant, Riz Ahmed, brilliant performance, and just great. It just really, you know, a lot of I think the Oscar nominated films here were this year were just quite innovative and interesting. I enjoyed Nomadland, Nomadland as well. I thought that was uh, very yeah, moving really as well yeah. and just uh, gave you an insight into what it's like to work in an Amazon factory, you know. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know and just, uh, you know, I was, I was pleased because sometimes, you know, you get those years in the Oscars back in the old days when it was sort of Titanic or or Avatar and you sort of feel a bit dirty. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> 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 These at least were interesting films and you could watch them. So I enjoyed, enjoyed those a lot. And uh, the last TV show that you watched or are watching? Um, uh, the la- the very last one I watched was last night. My kids are very into uh, Meet the Goldbergs, oh, which yeah. is very, oh, yeah. very funny. And uh, uh, I grew up in North London in the 80s. And although I'm not Jewish myself, everyone I knew was Jewish. And so, so uh, the snapshot of a Jewish household in the 80s feels very familiar to me and uh, <laughs> and it's very it's very good to spend some time with them and and the kids the kids love it because it's 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 about that time when you're sort of a, a tweenie and then a teeny and, and things are becoming really awkward you know and parents are sort of hideously embarrassing and sex is raising its head and so it, it, it's quite educative it prompts some interesting discussions in our household afterwards <laughs> <laughs> nice and um the very last thing we do is a quick fire either or and um i always say there's no right answers apart from one and we'll start <laughs> off with uh, James Patterson or Thomas Harris. Thomas Harris. Nice. Um, a line of duty or Mayor of Easttown? Mayor of Easttown. <laughs> uh, TV or cinema? Ah, cinema, probably. Uh, Night Owl or Early Bird? Uh, early Bird. Actually, no, both, both, both. I don't sleep much. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and the last one we'll go for print book or ebook. Print, obviously. Unfortunately, oh, that was the incorrect answer there. <laughs> so. We're doing pretty well up to then. <laughs> yeah, blew it at the last. Never mind. Never mind. <laughs> so, Tarek. What we've learned there is that you need to pitch your your first book as a seven book series. <laughs> that was a problem. I was six books short when I pitched mine. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's funny because that that does go against all the advice you always hear that you know don't pitch as a series. Series potential maybe, but you yeah. know. Mm-hmm. But, but he really went out, out the gate with that with that idea, and that's obviously it's, I presume something that from the the world of film and TV, you know, that kind of idea of. This is long form. It's got to have legs. You've got to show you can keep it going down the road. And 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 I think as well, what, yeah, absolutely. And what what he was saying about you know, I think especially if you're starting out as an author, you can be um, sort of hesitant to you know say that as he said the word franchise and and sort of act like it's a commercial thing. But actually, that's what publishers want to hear. Absolutely. They they want to sell books ultimately. Absolutely, it know? is commercial. I mean, yeah. and and nowadays, look at stuff like Star Wars and Marvel, mm-hmm. etc. It's all about franchise. It's all about mm-hmm. showing this is a product which you can expand and make money yeah. off. And and you're right, there is a hesitancy there. I think from new authors, um, and it, and that's because they've often been told not to mm-hmm. do that. But but you're right. At the end of the day, 
there's a money making industry that's about making money and selling books. Yeah, you 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 can write the uh, the greatest book in the world, but if you, the publisher doesn't think they're going to be able to sell it, then it's unlikely to get picked up. Unfortunately, yeah, you know that's exactly. you know, and there's you know, is that right or not? I don't know. Probably not, but it is the reality of the situation. Yeah. yeah. So, um, thanks very much to uh, Matthew for speaking to us. Really enjoyed that chat. You can go and pick up his latest book in the Helen Grace series, Truth or Dare, as we were chatting about there. So uh, I do highly recommend that and go and check out the past books as well because they're all great. Fantastic series. And uh, we're looking forward to seeing what he has next on TV as well. Very exciting. A man of many talents. Exactly. And actually, he t- he talked about the, the, the audible thing there as well, which is... Yeah, a, that's quite interesting. You no, know, it's a really... We, we Obviously, we've had Dirk Maggs on before, who's who's very much sort of the, the king of audio drama. <laughs> um, but it's always interesting that, that it's such a different form of, of yeah. writing as well, because you, you have, as we were chatting about, you know, how do you get certain things across in that form and stuff like that? Yeah, so. it's really, and when it's done badly, it really sticks out. Yeah. But when it's mm-hmm. done well, it, it, it draws you in way more than a just an audiobook does because yeah. you're kind of, it's like a radio play. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really fantastic. Yeah. So uh, thanks again to Matthew for coming on to the podcast. I really enjoyed that. Um, but we've got another great guest next week. Yeah, next week we're chatting with Philip Gwynne Jones, who has worked in Edinburgh, much like ourselves, mm-hmm. although he's from Wales. He uh, spent 20 years in IT, and then he moved to Italy when uh, he was made redundant, and he became a translator, and he kind of threw it all away and went to Italy. He says on his website he worked for the, for the European Space Agency, but he kept that quiet. <laughs> yeah, we didn't ask must him be about a while, that. But he didn't just move to any city, Derek. He moved to Venice, which That's is, right. uh, for me, very special, since I've got family there. Um, but his his he sort of almost fell into writing by accident when he was there and he started writing he uh, he i think he wrote a memoir first but then um started writing thrillers all set in venice with this character nathan sutherland his first one i think is the venetian legacy and that no, the venetian game oh the venetian game sorry the legacy is the latest one then That's obviously right. sorry and and he's got a fascinating tale about how that suddenly propelled him to a whole new career because a year after publishing, I think Waterstones right. picked it as their book of the month, and suddenly yeah. it, it took impact. off from there. Yeah, yeah, he's it's a, it's a really nice guy. It's a really mm-hmm. fun chat we have with him. And yeah, he's had quite the, and as many of our guests in the past, a very different entry to the world of writing. So it's it's another yeah another way exactly in. exactly. So uh, yeah, I hope you can join us for that one. But if you enjoyed this episode or any of our previous episodes, please do take time to leaves a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever app uh, you listen to. And of course, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can always send us a tweet in the Twitter machine, which is at right underscore gear or an email to podcast at rightgear.co.uk. But otherwise, have a great week and we'll see you next episode. See you later. 